Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of 100 Fathoms Under by John Blaine. Volume 3 Chapter 7 The Stowaway Rick sat on the edge of his bunk and examined a leg that was already turning purple. He had struck an edge of the steel cradle with the big muscle of his thigh. It hurt like the dickens, but it wasn't serious. I saw you hit, Scotty said, but you were on your feet right away, so I didn't think you'd been hurt. There wasn't time for me to find out, Rick said ruefully. Well, we can be thankful it wasn't more serious, Harson Brandt said. It'll hurt for a while, though, Rick. Chada grinned. Also, it would be pretty like sunset. You and your Hindu philosophy, Scotty scoffed. Would you be as cheerful if it was your leg? No, Chada said truthfully. I was just trying to cheer up Rick. Help me up. Don't cheer me up, Rick said. I want to walk around a little so it won't stiffen up on me. Good idea, Zircon said. Help him out on the deck, Scotty. The squall is past. Rick took a turn around the deck, then sat down on the hatch cover. The pain had subsided to an ache and he could walk with only a slight limp. The squall had vanished over the horizon, leaving the air moist and cool. Odd how those pocket-sized storms come and go, Gordon said. Hey, what's up? Turk Mullane was striding toward them, face dark with anger. He held up a piece of black material festooned with wires. Rick recognized it instantly as a radio tube, the glass broken. Fine piece of work! Turk said angrily. The cover was off the radio phone box, and this stupid fool at the wheel didn't cover it up when the storm broke. This is a result. A smashed tube. A pair of field glasses fell into the box. Hartson Brandt examined the broken thing. That's the final output tube. Do you have a replacement, Captain? No. Thanks to Digger. I told him to pick up some spares and thought he had. It's my own damn fault for leaving details to someone else. That means no ship-to-shore communication, Scotty said with a glance at Rick. I don't know that it matters much, Zircon stated. We haven't used the radio phone and there'd be no occasion unless we were in distress, which doesn't seem likely. Don't worry about it, Captain. Thank you, Turk said gruffly. I was afraid you'd be upset. Rick watched the broad-shouldered figure as Turk went back to the pilot house. I don't like it. We should have brought our own radio. There's no need, Gordon replied. As Hobart pointed out, we wouldn't need it except in a case of distress. Then Oterra arrived with a large platter of fried chicken, and the matter was forgotten in the pleasant business of eating.
Gentle breathing from the bunks next to him and above him told Rick that Scotty and Chato were sound asleep. He'd been asleep too, but not very soundly. The ache of his bruised leg had awakened him. He shifted the leg to a more comfortable position and stared into the darkness. Outside the wooden hull, the gurgle of water was pleasant and the throb of the diesel engines was muffled. Three more days to Quangara. He hoped they'd pass quickly. He was anxious to make his first dive in the submobile and to get his first look at the lost temple of Alta Yuan, buried for centuries beneath the sea. His active imagination drew a picture of it as it must have been before the water swallowed it. Presently, he tired of trying to picture what it would be like when they found it. He decided he was hungry. He hadn't eaten much of that delicious fried chicken because the pain in his leg had robbed him of his normal appetite. He swung to the deck and tested his footing. The leg was a bit stiff, but he could walk all right. He slipped into his moccasins and went out the cabin door and turned toward the refrigerator room. There was no need for lights. He knew where everything was. In the refrigerator room, the tiny glow of the pilot light showed him the door handle. He swung it open, shivering in the sudden rush of icy air. The pilot light, which showed that the freezing unit was operating, gave enough of a glow so that he could locate the apple barrel. He found a good-sized one and swung the door shut, silently so he wouldn't awaken anyone. The apple was too cold to bite into. He stood in the passageway and rubbed it between his hands, warming it. Turk Mullane, grouched though he might be, certainly knew how to stock a ship. He lifted the apple to take a bite and suddenly halted. There was a clatter from up forward, behind the door that led to the paint locker. Something had fallen. Curious, he walked over, silent in his moccasins, and threw the door open. A dark form hurtled forward and drove him violently against the metal door jamb. Rick let out a yell of surprised fright, then a grunt as powerful arms locked around his pajamaed waist. Before he could gather his wits and fight back, the unexpected assailant had his arms tied fast in a judo hold. Rick kicked out and his moccasin drove into soft flesh. There was a grunt, then an elbow caught him under the chin and he saw stars. He squirmed, but the grip tightened painfully. He threw his weight forward, legs driving, and gained a little room. Lights flashed on in the passageway, and he caught a quick glimpse of Chada, his hand on the switch, and Scotty jumping headlong through the door. The man's hands dropped from Rick's arms as he whirled to meet Scotty's charge. Then there was the unbelievable, the incredible spectacle of Scotty flying through the air to land with a stunning crash against the refrigerator. Rick rushed, shoulder low, and took the man on the side. They catapulted into the passageway, and the stranger gave a cat-like twist that brought him on top. Then Chada stepped in with an iron meat hook in his hand. He brought it down sharply, and the stranger collapsed in a heap on top of Rick. Rick pushed the inert form aside and got to his feet, a little dizzy. Scotty stood up at the same time, rubbing his head, and with a look of dismayed surprise on his face. Chada, still holding the hook, one that had been used to hang a side of beef in the refrigerator, bent and rolled the man over. Rick stared at the face, and somehow he wasn't surprised. It was the Japanese man with a broken nose. The passageway was now full, and the scientists and the crew hurried toward the sound of the fighting. What is it? 
Hartson Brandt asked. Are you all right, boys? We're okay, Rick answered. Zircon stared down at the unconscious man on the deck. Rick, isn't that... Yes, sir. It's the one we got the picture of. Turk Mullane pushed his way to the fore and stared down at the Japanese man. Who found him? he demanded. I did, Rick said. I went to the reefer for an apple, and I heard a noise from the paint locker. I thought something had fallen, so I went to look, and he jumped me. Scotty went into the paint locker, turning on the lights. In a moment, he returned. Well, I found where he's been hiding, he stated. There was a false wall in there. That's why we missed him when we searched. I spotted it this time because he left the boards pulled out. Professor Gordon had bent over the Japanese man. He's coming too, I think. Somebody gave him a hard belt. That was Chada, Rick said. The Japanese groaned and opened his eyes. Gordon moved back and he sat up. On your feet, Turk Mullane growled. He lifted the Japanese upright and let him lean against a bulkhead. No, what are you doing here? Beady, expressionless eyes flicked from face to face. Zulk. Digger Sears threatened. I will bash you again. None of that, Turk snapped. Get back to the bridge, Digger. Come on, fella. What are you doing here? The man shrugged and said something in Japanese. Maybe he doesn't speak English, Rick suggested. It's possible, Hartson Brandt said, but highly improbable given usual Japanese education. He just doesn't want to speak. Rick blurted suddenly. Is your name Asamo? There was a small flicker of intelligence deep in the man's eyes, but then he was impassive again. However, Turk Belaine whirled and demanded, What makes you think his name is Asamo? Yes, Rick, what is this? Hartson Brandt asked. Rick explained about the scrap of paper they had found in their cabin. Have you heard the name before? Rick asked Turk. It sounds familiar. Turk admitted. But that doesn't mean anything. Many Japanese names sound alike. I think the important question is, how did he manage to remain hidden for so long? Well, no one's been in that paint locker, Scotty suggested. And that false bulkhead made a good hiding place. He could have gotten plenty of food by taking fruit and leftovers from the fridge. Rick said. The big question is, what's he doing aboard? What does he want? No one, however, had an answer to that. Well, even if he is aboard without permission, Hartson Brandt said, we can't leave him in that hole forever. We'll lock him in at night and let him out with a guard in the daytime. I'd like to know what he's doing here. If he won't talk, we can't make him. There's no point in standing here, Turk put in. I'll see he's locked up for the night. Perhaps morning we'll throw some light on the deal. He motioned to the Japanese. The man went sullenly. Rick and Scotty followed as Turk walked into the paint locker with him. As Scotty had said, one side of the locker had a false wall. The boards pulled out now. There was just room for a man to stretch out in there. Turk went through the man's clothes swiftly and came up with a jackknife and a paper book of matches. The door was normally unlocked, but it had a regular door lock on it. Turk produced a ring of keys and turned the bolt. I don't know as we've anything to fear from him. He can't do anything to the ship without hurting himself in the bargain. But I'll have the watch keep an eye on him. 
In a few moments, order was restored and the boys were in their bunks again with the lights out. Well, he scared the scarch out of me, Rick admitted. I didn't expect to find anybody when I opened the door. I wonder why he jumped me like that. Well, you startled him, Scotty said. He probably heard you go into the refrigerator, then he heard the door close and thought you'd gone back to your cabin. I imagine he was on his way to get a little bite to eat, huh? Then, when you suddenly opened the door, he jumped. He was probably more scared than you, I bet, Chada added. I'd like to meet that character on even terms. Scotty didn't sound happy. He took me by surprise. I didn't expect to meet up with a judo expert. Chada chuckled. For a minute there, I think maybe Scotty is learning to fly like a bird. Yeah, that's the meat hook kid talking, Rick laughed. Seriously, what do you think he's doing here? Neither Scotty nor Chada had any suggestions. Maybe finding our friend will put a stop to whatever he had planned, Rick said. Maybe, Scotty said pessimistically, but don't bet on it. Watch out, Asamo, Chada reminded them. That's another side to the puzzle, Rick agreed. What does it mean? Is that our new friend's name? Did that scrap of paper get into our cabin by mistake? Was it a warning? And who wrote it? Scotty laughed, but there was no humor in it. Huh, a lot of questions. Not one single answer. Tomorrow maybe we get answers, Chada said. I have a hunch, Rick replied slowly, that a lot of tomorrows are going to go by before we get the answers to any of this. Chapter 8 Quangara Island The tarpon rode the long Pacific swells gently, her engines turning over just enough to give her rudder control. Rick strained his eyes to see through the darkness to where the high bulk of land made a deeper blackness against the sky. It'll be daylight soon, Scotty said. The Spindrift Party was gathered on the after deck of the trawler, waiting for the first glimmer of dawn to show them their destination. They had arrived off Quangara in the late hours of night, and all hands had gotten dressed, too excited to sleep any longer. Otera appeared with glasses of fruit juice, which were gratefully accepted. He passed the juice around in silence, then hurried back to the galley. Questioning the cook had brought no results. Rick was sure he knew something, but fright sealed his lips. Nor had anyone else admitted knowledge of the stowaway or his reason for being aboard. The Japanese himself was taking the whole thing very calmly. He had not spoken a word, nor did they expect him to. By day, he had been permitted up on deck, up in the bow where the steersman could keep an eye on him. At night, he had been secured in the paint locker. Apparently entirely content, he had spent his days staring out to sea and enjoying the sunlight. Rick's head was tired from trying to think of reasons for his presence. There was nothing he could do about it except to keep his eyes open. By unspoken agreement, the entire Spindrift group was watchful, each seeking some solution to the puzzle. Scotty had taken his rifle from his storage place, and it was never far from his side. Turk Mullane came by and spoke cheerfully to the silent group. Dawn in about fifteen minutes. So what are the plans? We won't get the submobile into the water today, I'm thinking. Hartson Brandt answered him. Not today, Captain. 
We'll set up camp first thing, then mount the sound ball in the bow and see if we can't locate the temple. If we succeed, we can make our first test dives tomorrow. Rick pondered the change in Turk. As the trawler had neared Quangara, the broad-shouldered captain had regained his good humor. Perhaps he was one of those men who turned irritable under stress and regained their usual poise when the crisis is over. Rick didn't think that was the answer, however. Turk's friendliness was not genuine. As the first streaks of daylight turned the eastern sky pink, Otera came again with coffee and sandwiches. Rick leaned against the rail with the rest of the spindrift party and tried to pierce the darkness that still lay over Quangara. Little by little, as the sky lightened, they made out details. They'd been running back and forth, half a mile away from a small island that seemed to be mostly a pyramid of rock thrusting out of the sea, a few trees around its base. That would be little Quangara. Beyond it, perhaps 2,000 yards farther on, was the high bulk of Quangara itself. As full daylight came, Rick saw that it was a green-clad mountain that ended in a rocky cone. Quangara had evidently been a volcano. From the bridge came a sharp order, and the engines turned faster. Turk himself took the wheel as the trawler pointed its bow toward the larger island. Rick saw the white line of surf that marked the reef, He could see clearly now that they were headed for a spit of land that thrust out from Gwangara. Turk took them right up to the reef and through the passage as the leesman sang out his depths. They dropped anchor in eight fathoms, just a hundred feet from the tip of the small peninsula. Behind the spit of land, the island rose sharply, covered with a seemingly impenetrable maze of trees and underbrush. From somewhere inland, A bird cry made a harsh welcome that only intensified the silence. The three scientists bent over their chart, and the boys joined them. The spit of land was clearly marked. It was one of three flat places. At the south end of the island was a plain where a native village, probably the only one, had been indicated. At the northern tip was another plain marked by a marshland. Otherwise, the island was entirely mountainous. The highest peak was marked at 1,200 feet. The crew was already busy lowering one of the two whaleboats. Turk joined the scientific party. I know you're anxious to get ashore. I'd like to go with you. Of course, Hartzenbrandt said. Turk turned and gave orders to Digger Sears, who had followed him from the bridge. Keep that stowaway locked up until we get back, and start rigging the bow platform for the sound gear. It took only a moment to get aboard the whaleboat and cast off. Turk himself took one oar, and Scotty the other. After a short pull, the sand grated under them. From the beach, the small peninsula rose very gradually for about 200 feet. Then the wall of the jungle began, its edge as clearly defined as though a giant's knife had shorn away the foliage. Scotty, rifle in hand, joined Rick in his examination of their new base. The spit of land was covered with knee-high grass, right up to the jungle's edge. I wonder why the jungle just stops there, Rick asked. Professor Gordon answered him. There's bedrock under us, with just a thin layer of soil, too thin to support anything but grass. But look over here, boys. They followed him to a table of stone. 
It was about three feet high, six feet long, and four feet wide, obviously carved by hand from a huge piece of volcanic rock. That's the stone Dr. Warren told us about, Rick said. It's the edge of what used to be the temple. The sight of the stone excited him. It was the first tangible evidence of the presence of Alta Yuan. He looked out to sea past the trawler. The rest of the temple was out there, somewhere. Scotty was still looking toward the jungle, bent forward a little, head turned as though he strained to hear something. Did you hear a noise? Rick asked. No, Scotty said, voice hushed. That's just it. Listen, everybody. The scientists stopped talking and silence pressed in on them. It was a living, uncanny silence, as though the whole island held its breath. Unaccountably, Rick shivered. I don't like it. A jungle is usually the noisiest place on earth. Scotty's voice was lost in the stillness. You're right, Professor Gordon agreed. Full of birds and insects and small animals and all kinds of unexplained noises. Chada gave a visible shudder. It is like the Towers of Silence in Bombay, where the Parsis bury the dead. I think I'm smelling the same too, like much death. Rick nodded. There was a strange odor of lush tropic growth and alien flowers, decay, wet muskiness. Nonsense, Hobart Zircon boomed. We'll get ourselves into a fine state of nerves like this. It's simply that we're used to the bustle and hustle of the ship. Isn't that right, Captain Mullane? Sure, Turk agreed. Your ears are still full of the engine noise. You got so used to it aboard the ship, you'd no longer noticed. But to shore, it makes everything seem unnaturally quiet. Rick looked at Scotty and saw him shrug. Scotty wasn't convinced. Chada who had started prowling through the long grass near the stone table, suddenly called out, I have found a thing! The others hurried to his side, and Rick saw a fragment of carved broken stone, about six inches square. Before it was a small pile of fresh fruit, coconuts, and bits of carved wood. A stick thrust into the ground carried a small bit of white bark at its tip. A trampled path led through the grass, from the pile to the jungle. Natives, Turk said in a tone of disgust. Before anyone could make a move to stop him, his foot had scattered the pile of fruit. The scientists exclaimed, but Turk added hurriedly, If you're going to camp here, it's best to discourage the beasts right off. You don't want them around. But we do, Gordon stated. I'm curious to see what they're like. I've even brought equipment for making cranial measurements. Yes, Hartz and Brandt agreed. Please let any native stuff alone that we may find, Captain. We want them to be friendly toward us. Turk growled agreement. Rick missed Scotty. He turned and saw him near the edge of the jungle, rifle held in the curve of his arm. We're being watched, Scotty said quietly. I felt it before, but I wasn't sure until Turk kicked that stuff. And whoever is in there didn't like it. How do you know that? Rick asked curiously. Scotty shrugged. I just know, that's all. I could feel it. 
I feel it also, said Chada, who had joined them. That was evidence enough for Rick. He'd had experience before with Scotty's well-developed intuition. Scotty had jungle sense, acquired during his service with the Marines in the war, and Chada's upbringing, living by his wits in the slums of Bombay, had given him the same extra perception. Watching the dense wall of jungle, Rick had the weird sensation of eyes watching his every move. Abruptly, he turned away. The scientists, however, were too enwrapped by their examination of the carved fragment Chada had discovered to notice anything. It's evidently a portion of a head, Gordon was saying as the boys rejoined them. However, I'm not prepared to say what kind of head. It might be a lion, a dog, maybe a snake. Turk Mullane demanded impatiently. Well, do we get going? I'll have your camping equipment brought ashore if you say the word, and you can have your camp pitched by noon. By all means, Hartzenbrand said. The next hours were busy ones. With all hands helping, the camp equipment was brought ashore, and Camp Spindrift, as Scotty named it, began to take shape. Rick found time to ask Scotty, What do you think of us camping ashore like this, and leaving only Turk and company aboard the ship, not to mention our new Japanese pal? Scotty thought it over. I think it's okay. After all, what could they do? They wouldn't run off and leave us. They could be tracked down too easily once Dr. Warren's people decided we'd been gone too long without any word and sent a rescue plane. Maybe they want the equipment, Rick suggested. Maybe. They can't operate it, and it would do them no good to damage it. If that was what they wanted, they could have done that long ago anyway. Besides, we haven't a thing on Turk except that he's grouchy at sea. Don't forget that Japanese, Rick said. Yeah, he's a puzzle. But what can he do? If he had wanted to damage the equipment, he could have done that before he found him too. And he can't hurt the boat without sinking himself as well. The answer echoed Rick's thoughts. Nevertheless, he was uneasy. All we could do was let nature take its course, I guess. That's a futile way of doing things, but what else are we going to do? Nothing, Scotty said. Come on, help me with this tent. The two pyramid tents were erected with jointed poles and steel tent pegs that had been brought along. Three army cots were placed in each, complete with mattress pads, blankets, and mosquito nets. A water bag was set up on a tripod of poles to be filled daily from the ship's supply. Meanwhile, Hobart Zircon and Professor Gordon had set up the camp's electrical system. Several storage batteries operated a small converter that produced 110 volts. A one-cylinder gasoline charging unit would keep the voltage in the batteries. Lights were strung within the tents and on a line that stretched between them. In the tent assigned to the boys was placed a two-unit electric plate and an electric percolator in case a meal was wanted ashore. Professor Gordon took the medical supplies and his ultraviolet sterilizer into his own tent. The spit of land out here seems healthy enough, he said. We may not even need to use the DDT or the sterilizer at all. By lunchtime, the place was ship-shape and ready for occupancy. Rick was pleased as he looked around the little camp. While the space ashore would be needed for the material they found at the sea bottom, 
One of the main reasons for the camp was that none of the Spindrift parties especially enjoyed living in the crowded, stuffy quarters aboard the ship. As they prepared to go back to the ship for lunch, Scotty asked Hartz and Brandt, Shouldn't we have a guard for the camp, sir? If we leave it, the natives might steal everything in sight. We'll fix that, Professor Gordon stated. He rummaged in a supply box and found a coil of strong twine. Then he tore a white handkerchief into a half dozen strips. While Rick watched, wondering, Gordon and Scotty strung the twine across the peninsula right at the edge of the jungle. Then Gordon hung the strips of handkerchief at intervals. Now the peninsula is safe, Gordon stated. Sure enough, Scotty grinned. I'd forgotten about that. We're making the camp taboo, Gordon explained. Did you notice the strip of white bark on the stick next to the pile of offerings? That's proof that these people cling to the old beliefs. Rick looked at the strips of white handkerchief with disbelief. Do you mean that that little string is actually going to keep them away? It's the mark of taboo, Gordon affirmed. It's been that way for centuries. They firmly believe that to break a taboo means death. They're not going to risk it. It actually works, Scotty assured Rick. You'll see. I'll have to see, Rick stated. When do we get a demonstration? Scotty looked at the forbidding wall of jungle behind the line of white strips. There was worry in his eyes as he said, Well, maybe sooner than you think. Chapter 9. Searching by Sound Digger Sears, acting on Turk's instructions, had rigged a platform on the bow of the trawler. After lunch, Hartson Brandt directed the placing of the sound equipment on the platform. A rounded brass dome about 18 inches in diameter was lowered into the water under the trawler's bow and then securely bolted to the plank platform. Hobart Zircon opened a large metal case, exposing a complicated control board that had a circular screen, a loudspeaker, and an illuminated scale. A cable was secured to a socket in the control box, and its other end plugged into the brass dome. Then a power cable was attached to the deck generator outlet. We'll cover the entire channel between here and Little Quangara, Hartson Brandt instructed Turk. I'll depend on you to take sightings with the Perlorus when we locate anything on the bottom. Professor Gordon will sketch the depth curves. Right, Turk agreed. He shouted instructions to up anchor, and the trawler moved slowly out through the reef opening. As they cleared the reef, Hartz and Brandt turned a knob, and a panel lit up. On the circular screen, a hand like that of a clock began its slow sweep. The illuminated scale showed dancing points of light. As another switch was turned, the loudspeaker began to give off a rapid beep-beep sound. Rick watched, fascinated. He knew the theory of the thing, but he had never seen it in operation before. The brass ball was sending out bursts of supersonic waves, inaudible to the human ear. As they struck the bottom, the sound waves were reflected back and picked up again by the apparatus. The illuminated scale automatically showed the time of the echo measured in feet instead of seconds. The beep-beep noise was the initial sound of impulse translated into audible sound, and that was followed closely by the returning echo. As the water deepened, the space between the beeps grew more pronounced, 
and Hartson Brandt began to read the depths aloud. 50, 55, 60, 58, 57, 60, 65, 69. Rick had a mental picture of the bottom as his father droned out the readings. A gradual slope and then a small hill and the bottom dropped off more sharply. He sighted across the bow and saw the Turk was heading slowly out to sea at right angles to the shore of Quangara. The deepest spot was almost 1,600 feet, close to the small island known as Little Quangara. Turk brought the trawler even with the small island and turned her sharply and headed back on a parallel course. The trawler had made four such runs before Hartz and Brandt found anything of interest. He called out sharply, I have something. Gordon, get this. He read off figures showing a sharp, irregular rise and fall in the sea bottom. Rick sighted across the stern. They were about a thousand feet from Camp Spindrift and six hundred feet of water. Their line of travel was between the spit of land and the southern tip of Little Quangara. Every person aboard, except for the Japanese who was locked up, and Turk and one of the seamen who was in the pilot house, had gathered to watch over Hartz and Brandt's shoulder. Rick grinned at Scotty. Even Otera, Digger, and the two other crewmen were excited. Turk stepped out on the deck, and he was grinning from ear to ear. Shall I make another run over that spot? Please, Hartz and Brandt said. He looked up from the control panel. There's certainly something there. Turk swung the trawler and headed back. Again, the sound equipment picked up irregular echoes. Gordon was jotting them down and making a diagram from the distances given. Four more times, the trawler ran over the spot, on a slightly different course each time, and as they ran across for the last time, Gordon gave an exultant shout. It's the temple. It's gotta be. That last run gave me the dimensions. Listen to this. Almost square, roughly a hundred feet on a side. There must be a wide wall around it, maybe ten feet high. I don't know how wide because the gear isn't that sensitive, but it's got to be pretty wide since it does register. Turk turned the trawler over to Digger and joined the scientists. Well, that's the doggondest thing I've ever seen, he exclaimed. They didn't have stuff like that when I was doing salvage. It certainly pegs the bottom, doesn't it? There was no doubting Turk's genuine enthusiasm. The captain was as pleased over the finding of the temple as any of the Spindrift party. Rick began to like Turk a little better again. Did you get bearings? Hartson Brandt asked. To the inch, I can take you to any quarter of the place you want. Fine, Zircon boomed. Well, Hartson, what now? I think we had better continue charting the bottom, Mr. Brandt said. There may be other portions of the temple, or perhaps another building somewhere around. All right, Turk said agreeably. There we go. As Turk ran the trawler back and forth, the depth contour of the bottom took shape. The sea bottom sloped gradually from Krongara until it reached a maximum depth of 1,600 feet, about 2,000 feet from Little Quangara. Then it rose abruptly to Little Quangara Reef. Nothing unusual showed on the sound gear. The beefs continued, only the space between them showing the gradual bottom change. 
Then 300 feet off the southern tip of Little Quangara, Hartson Brandt suddenly turned the speaker volume high. The echo pinged sharply. Well, that's strange. Did you hear that? Captain, run by that spot again, please. Turk did so, and the character of the beeps changed sharply. Metal, Zircon exclaimed. That's almost certainly metal. The trawler swung again, and Gordon jotted down Mr. Brandt's readings. 750, 750, 720, 720, 750, 750, 700, 670. Sheer off, Hartson Brandt called suddenly. We're running on a steep to shore. The trawler's nose swung sharply about as Turks on the wheel. He headed back to Quangara and then came out on deck. What's up? An underwater cliff, Hartson Brandt explained. I didn't want to risk going closer until we found out how close it comes to the surface. Gordon, what do the figures show? Gordon examined his sketch. The bottom rises abruptly, shelves off for about 300 feet, and then rises to a steep cliff. The shelf is at 750 feet, and there's something on it, maybe 30 feet high. Pretty big. A ship. Almost certainly. He looked at the interested faces around him. Did we say that the war didn't come to Quangara? I'd say at least one ship sunk here, unless some merchantman struck that cliff and sank herself and came to rest on that ledge. Perhaps we can investigate when we've finished with the temple, Zircon suggested. Oh, you never know where you'll find wrecks these days, Turk Mullane said. But I'll tell you this. That one did not hit the underwater cliff. How do you know that? Zircon asked quickly. I can tell by the color of the water that the cliff doesn't come close enough to the surface to be a menace. I'd say that ship was sunk. There was ill-concealed excitement in the way the Turk grinned at them. Funny, isn't it? I'm as geared up over this business as any of you. Rick, get the chart, please. Give it to the captain. Hartson Brandt requested. Will you transfer your Perlerus sightings to our chart as well as your own, Captain? I think we can go back to our anchorage now. We've found what we want. Rick took the charger to the pilot house and watched Turk transfer his sightings, placing both the temple and the sunken ship in their exact locations. Haven't enjoyed anything so much since we found the old Havana girl in 250 feet off the Isle of Pines, Turk said jovially. You're lucky to be along on a trip like this, lad. I guess I am, Rick said shortly. He couldn't forget that Turk had been snarling at everybody only a few days past. He didn't like anybody who changed his colors so often. As the trawler headed back to Anchorage, Rick joined Scotty at the rail. I wonder what that ship is, Scotty mused. Merchantman? Warship? Japanese? American? Maybe British? We'll probably never know. Unless there's time to make a few dives and investigate when we're through with the temple. He looked at his watch. Oh, wow, it's already supper time. We've been at this all afternoon. I don't need a watch, Scotty said with a grin. My stomach tells me when it's time to eat. Chada, who had helped Zircon to disconnect the sound equipment, came and stood beside them. Turk is very happy, the Hindu boy told them. He stands in the pilot house and hums like a happy bumblebee. Not only Turk, even Digger is grinning like a contented horse, 
Scotty added. Rick watched two of the seamen standing by the anchor, ready to let go when they were inside the reef. Huey, Dewey, and Louie, too, he agreed. It was strange, but the afternoon's work had changed the entire atmosphere of the ship. I haven't seen our Japanese friend, Rick commented. But if he's like the rest, he's probably whistling the prisoner's song and feeling happy about the whole thing. But if the trawler echoed excited happiness from all hands, the island itself hadn't changed. The Spindrift group went ashore in twilight and turned on the power system to give them lights while getting ready for bed. The hum of the generator was loud in the stillness and even the strong light of the bulbs seemed to be lost in the darkness at the edge of the jungle. Rick noted that Scotty's rifle was never far from his friend's hand. He asked quietly, Are you nervous? Yeah, Scotty answered bluntly. It's too quiet. Much too quiet, Chato agreed. I am not liking this. Then when they were in their bunks with the power turned off, the silence pressed in with even more intensity. Rick felt stifled under his mosquito net, but he knew he shouldn't open it. He lay awake, tense with listening for some sound that never came.